This afternoon, Greg introduced the third of the three Brahma-Vihara practices, the practice of mudita, cultivating gladness or joy, sometimes translated as sympathetic joy or altruistic joy or appreciative joy. And after the guided meditation, I invited you to continue orienting towards this quality of mudita more informally by spending some time during the walking meditation just to tune in to experiences that may have triggered some sense of delight or joy or appreciation. And I invited you to write down what you noticed and to put them in a bowl in the dining room. And when I came into the uh, dining room just uh, later in the afternoon, the bowl was actually full to overflowing. So right there, there was this little uh, pulse of mudita for me. It was a real delight to read all of the responses that you, you had. And I'll be coming back to them later in the talk. But for now, I wanted to just uh, talk a little bit more about the context of mudita practice and how it fits with the other three Brahma-Viharas. So as Greg mentioned the other day, uh, these four practices all work together to strengthen and support and protect each other so that together they help the heart and the mind come into states of profound balance. And metta is really the foundation of all of them that the other three qualities emerge from. And it's said that when metta turns towards difficulty, it flowers naturally as compassion. And when metta turns towards what's going well, towards success, it flowers as mudita or joy. So you might get a sense then that there's a relationship between compassion and joy that joy can protect our compassion practice from falling into grief or sorrow, and compassion in turn protects our mudita practice from falling into elation or ungrounded exuberance. So each of these four Brahma-Vihara qualities are really, you could see them as different flavors of love, and they work together to balance each other out. And there's a description of these four qualities by a couple of English Dharma teachers that I really appreciate, Caroline Jones and Paul Burroughs. Caroline is currently the resident teacher at IMS's Forest Refuge, which is where I first heard this description of the Brahma-Viharas. So they say, Metta, kindness, is the love that connects. It's an antidote to all forms of aversion. It is not attachment. If it slides into sentimentality, karuna or compassion brings the heart back into balance. Karuna, the love that responds, is an antidote to cruelty. It is not pity. If it slides into sorrow, Mudita, appreciative joy, brings the heart back into balance. Mudita, the love that celebrates, is an antidote to envy. It is not competitive. 
if it slides into agitated excitement, upeka or equanimity brings the heart back into balance. Upeka, the love that allows, is the antidote to partiality. It is not indifference. If it slides into disconnection, metta brings the heart back into balance. So you can see how all of these qualities relate to each other and come full circle and set up, I think of this like a spiraling force field of wholesome states of heart and mind. And the other night when I spoke about compassion, I mentioned that one reason people sometimes struggle with it is from a fear of becoming overwhelmed by suffering. And in mainstream culture, we hear these days quite a bit about compassion fatigue or empathy burnout. But in this context, I think that's a misunderstanding of compassion, a misunderstanding that it's about feeling the other person's pain to the point of actually taking it on. But with these Brahma-Vihara teachings, that would be more an example of falling into the so-called near enemy of compassion, which is grief or overwhelm. So if we recognize that that's happening to us when we're doing compassion practice, we might need to consciously turn towards mudita to balance it out. So we pay attention to what we can appreciate and what's going well, so that we might... um, We turn to what we can appreciate and what we might be able to feel some sense of gratitude for. Because if we really look, even in the darkest situations, there are some aspects that we might appreciate. Even if nothing else, we might appreciate that the difficulty is giving us the opportunity to strengthen our capacity to be with difficulty. And there's a further connection between compassion and joy that's sometimes overlooked. And this is the aspect of compassion that is really oriented towards the relief from suffering. So, for example, Bhikkhu Analio, who some of you know, he has said that when we practice compassion, it's helpful to focus most of our attention on the wish to be free from suffering rather than on the suffering itself. So in this way, we're less likely to get caught in grief because we're connecting with the possibility of overcoming the suffering. And then, as he points out, when we do this, there can be traces of joy mixed in with the compassion. And so at times, the compassion practice can flow quite naturally into mudita. So this word mudita is usually translated as gladness or joy. And the way it was taught in the Buddha's lifetime was more of the method that I call the radiating method, the radiating energy method that I offered the other day in relation to metta. So as we've been chanting in the evenings, uh, the actual words in relation to mudita, here translated as gladness, are, I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with gladness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. As we've been saying later on in the tradition, mudita came to be understood as gladness for another's happiness. 
So it became known as sympathetic joy or altruistic joy, appreciative joy. And it developed into the uh, what I think of as the reciting phrases method of practice uh, from the Vasudhimaga, as Greg offered us this afternoon, with phrases such as, May your happiness and joy continue. May your happiness not leave you. May your happiness continue to grow. And when we're doing this method, traditionally we start, we work with a sequence of people and we start with someone we're close to who's currently enjoying some good fortune and happiness. Then we move on to the benefactor, then a neutral person, then a so-called difficult person, and then all beings. And in this method, we're instructed not to include ourselves in the sequence. So we don't um, offer mudita for ourselves in this method, and I'll be talking more about that tomorrow. For now, I just want to acknowledge that of these four Brahma-Vihara qualities, for various reasons, it seems to be that mudita gets the least attention. And even though the quality of joy actually plays a significant role in the Buddha's teachings, it seems, at least within the insight meditation teachings as I've heard them, it doesn't get a, a lot of uh, emphasis. Or that was a perception I had, so I, I tried to get an objective view of that by looking at the list of talks on Dhar- Dharma Seed. As many of you know, Dharma Seed is an online library of all of the many of the talks that are given in the insight meditation tradition in the West. And when I searched on each of the Brahma Viharas, there were 165 pages of talks on metta. There were 125 pages of talks on compassion. There were 68 pages of talks on equanimity and 18 on mudita. There are about 10 talks per page, so out of almost 30,000 talks, only 180 were on mudita, which is not a lot. And I wondered if perhaps this uh, lack of interest or emphasis on mudita is because you know, particularly in times like these when there seems to be so much... Um, intense suffering in the world. It can even feel like our survival as a species is under a threat. So it can seem perhaps a bit naive or even outright ridiculous to be thinking about cultivating joy. Every day we're exposed to horrifying news in the world out there, in our own communities, perhaps in our own families, our own lives. There are so many different forms of social oppression and injustice and divisiveness and we can easily feel pulled into despair and mudita seems utterly irrelevant. So we might legitimately ask, well, how can cultivating joy even be possible, let alone relevant in times like this? And of course I can't answer that question for any of you, but in terms of my own practice, it's felt like precisely because there's so much suffering in the world, it has felt more important to consciously turn towards um, 
non-suffering towards gladness and joy to restore myself, to come back to balance, to develop the emotional resilience so that I can meet that difficulty with greater strength and skillfulness. And having said that, I also want to acknowledge that for many people, mudita is the hardest of these four Brahma-Vihara qualities to, to develop. And so I'd like to start by just remembering that all of these qualities, the Brahma-Viharas, are purification practices, which, as we've been emphasizing, means that we start often by coming into contact with what gets in the way of the qualities, the obstacles towards them. And the first challenge that we might encounter is uh, is the... Uh, mind's inherent negativity bias that I've referred to a few times. The fact that biologically we're just hardwired to pay more attention to what's unpleasant than what's pleasant. So just for that reason, it can be good practice to consciously tune into pleasant experiences every now and then, as we did this afternoon, to sort of train ourselves to open to more of the full range of our experience and not just the narrow bandwidth of the unpleasant ones. So cultivating joy can have a very important role in balancing out our tendency to focus more on the difficulties than the successes. But then on top of this basic biological conditioning, many of us also carry a pretty heavy load of deep social conditioning too. So the sense of unworthiness that Greg mentioned this afternoon. Many of us have this tendency towards pretty deep-seated feelings of inadequacy or self-aversion or shame. And sometimes when we try to connect with mind states of joy or delight and appreciation, there can be a sense of not deserving to be happy. And because these tendencies are so deep-rooted, we often don't see how they feed into our relationship to the Dharma practice, too. So often we bring the unconscious tendency towards striving that I talked about the other night. And unfortunately, in some ways, uh, the teachings themselves can reinforce this sense of unworthiness. So one of my teachers, Gil Fransdahl, uh, talked about this in a way that was quite illuminating for me. He described, he was talking about different religious traditions, and he described how with theistic religions, ones that are centered around a god, there's a sense of an external judge or an authority who's kind of watching you, looking down on you and assessing you, watching your every move. So we can develop this fear of something outside of us that's um, going to judge us. With non-theistic religions, ones that don't have a God, such as Buddhism, although there's not so much a sense of a higher power who's judging us, there is a, an implicit perfectionism, an implicit idealism. And this can trigger our own sense of idealism. And that, then there can be a strong internal judgment. So rather than coming from outside, there's this sense, you know, we hear about the defilements and the hindrances and the afflictive energies. And we hear about the 
awakening factors and the paramis, the ten perfections, and it can create this sense of internal judgment. And when I heard Gil describe this, I thought, wow, in the West, you know, many of us actually have the worst of both worlds because we have our underlying Judeo-Christian heritage. And then on the top of that, we come to the Buddha's teachings. So we can internalize both an internal and an external sense of being judged. So I just wanted to highlight that um, this mudita practice can bring us into contact with some pretty deep-seated conditioning. And something that I noticed in myself when I started doing this practice and then started to notice in some of the students as well is this unseen assumption, perhaps from that underlying Judeo-Christian heritage, that somehow spiritual practice is supposed to be hard work. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. It's supposed to be difficult. It's supposed to be painful. And if it's not those things if it's neutral or perhaps even enjoyable, then we must be doing something wrong. Obviously, we're not working hard enough or not going deep enough or not seeing clearly enough. And from this assumption, there's often a lot of unconscious resistance even to the idea that joy might actually be a necessary part of the practice. So I mention that just as an invitation as you're listening to this talk to see if there are any kind of views or beliefs about joy that might be coming up for you. And it is definitely true that the Buddha emphasized that we're not to get attached to sense pleasures. But in my own case, I was so afraid of getting attached to enjoyment that for a while I didn't actually allow myself to feel any kind of pleasure at all. I was actually afraid of it. I, and I wasn't able to recognize that this uh, attitude was a form of wrong view. It was a wrong view that pleasant experiences automatically lead to attachment. And so I was kind of attached to non-attachment, which is just another form of attachment, just the opposite of what we might normally think of as attachment. It's also true that feeling joy requires a certain openness or even vulnerability. And it can be a surprising act of courage to let ourselves open to joy, knowing that it's impermanent, that it's going to pass. So, uh, as I mentioned the other night, uh, Brene Brown has been doing a lot of work. She's a social science researcher. She's been doing a lot of work on what, uh, how, how happy people are happy, almost independent of their life circumstances. And one of the things she identified that uh, led them to happiness was this capacity to be vulnerable for the whole range of experience. You know, mostly we try to filter out the unpleasant stuff and get the good stuff, but this actually shuts us down, narrows the range of what we can open to, whereas the people who had this kind of resilience and more consistent happiness were open to a much broader range of experience, or were vulnerable is the word that she uses. So she says, when we wake up every morning and armor up and say, I'm not going to let myself be hurt. 
I'm not going to let myself be seen. I'm not going to let myself be emotionally wrung out. I'm going to protect my vulnerability. When we lose that capacity for vulnerability, joy becomes foreboding. Because in those moments when we feel joy, the first thing we think is, uh-uh, you will not blind, you will not blindside me, vulnerability. I will beat you to the punch. I'm going to stand here and squander this incredible moment with my child or with my partner or this incredible moment about my promotion and I'm going to imagine the worst case scenario. That way, if it happens, it will hurt less. Which is why it's so ironic to me that people think that vulnerability is weakness when really letting ourselves fully soften into feeling is one of the most courageous things we can do. So fear of vulnerability is another obstacle to mudita. And another is the conditioning that most of us are subject to from our mainstream Western culture, which values individualism and competitiveness. So it's not surprising that when we're invited to open up to the happiness for others' happiness, happiness or success, we encounter the far enemy of mudita, which is resentment or envy or jealousy. The good news, though, is that as with all of the Brahma-viharas, we can train in them. And through practice, we can cultivate this capacity to experience joy more easily. So how do we actually do that? As with all of the Brahma-vihara practices, we're really encouraged to start where it comes most easily and to start small and gradually develop it. So just to acknowledge that for some people, even the word joy can feel like a stretch, just not part of my emotional repertoire or my capacity. That was uh, true of me in the beginning. I just didn't feel like it was something I even was capable of. So mostly I will use the word mudita untranslated, and you can put in whatever word feels most accessible for you, perhaps gladness or appreciation or lightness, if not actual delight. So mudita is not, doesn't have to be this big ecstatic bliss state. It can be very light and subtle and fleeting. So we can start to help incline the heart and mind in that direction of mudita by consciously checking in, tuning into aspects of our lives that we can appreciate in a simple, small and direct way like we were doing this afternoon. So just getting into the habit of noticing in the present moment any aspects of our experience that are registering as pleasant without grasping after them or pushing them away, but just noticing pleasant and allowing any natural responsive appreciation to be there. So this is one way of getting used to starting to incline towards mudita is to notice pleasant experiences. And then if we want to stretch that capacity um, beyond just our own experience to be able to appreciate the happiness of others, it might be easier to start with non-human beings, with animals rather than human beings, 
because for many of us, our relationship to other human beings is often quite complex and challenging. Whereas with animals, it's usually easier to feel a sense of enjoyment for their happiness. So Greg talked about feeding the birds and offering water to the birds and that natural sense of delight. And I think that's probably also why there are so many videos on YouTube of cute kittens and playful dogs. We just It's an easy way of getting a little hit of delight. And in relation to animals, there's an experience in my own life, my own practice from a few years ago now that helped me to connect with this quality of mudita. And I just would like to share it now as a, as an example. It was about maybe 15 years ago when I was uh, living here and New South Wales at that time was in the middle of a pretty serious drought. And I was going on a camping trip with a friend who's a very ardent environmentalist. And he has a real affinity for reptiles of all kinds. So we were driving to our camping destination through outback New South Wales and through very dry brown farmland. And every now and then we would see one of those um, excavated watering holes, uh, farm dams. And they were mostly pretty dry. Some of them just had a layer of sort of mud in the bottom. So we were driving along and at some point uh, we both noticed this black speck in the middle of the road. And I just thought, oh, it's an old blown out tire or a piece of rubbish. But my friend immediately started slowing down and he said, oh, that was a turtle. And I I didn't recognize it, but we drove back and sure enough, it was a, a turtle in the middle of the road. And we realized it had crawled out of one of these dams that, that was almost dry and it was in search of water. So we decided that we should take it with us and try to find a place for it to be, a stream somewhere. So my friend picked it up and, of course, pulled in its head and its legs. It was just a little shell, and we placed it on the dashboard, and we started driving, and it um, must have been really scared because it peed all over the dashboard. And there's something very potent about dehydrated turtle pee. (laughs) It's a very unusual and intense aroma. And it took us quite a long time to actually find a stream. We just kept passing all these dry creek beds and dry watering holes. And then finally, after a pretty long drive, we found a stream with actual running water. So we, my friend carried this turtle down to the water and it was sitting on the palm of his hand and he just lowered this shell into the water And then after a few moments, the turtle must have felt the water and it brought its legs out and then its head came up. And I just assumed it would dive off the hand, but it just sat there and it looked directly at us. And there was a moment of eye contact with it that was so powerful. You know, I don't want to anthropomorphize too much, but I still had this sense of, what it must have been like for that being to be in this drying up, drying up, drying up, life-threatening situation and then being forced to take the risk of 
becoming vulnerable to predators and cars and not knowing if there was any water to be found and then suddenly being plucked out of that context, being in this very bizarre situation and then suddenly in cool flowing water and my mind thought maybe that's like turtle nibbana when it first felt that running water again. So that was just a little moment of being able to feel quite a strong connection with um, what I assumed to be delight of another living being. There was something in its eye that I don't think was just projection, sense of gratitude. So in this training in Mudita, as with all of the Brahmaviharas, I sometimes use the, some of you have heard me use the metaphor of the Hubble telescope. Because for me, it was a real turning point when I realized that these Brahmavihara practices are not about manufacturing some non-existent state and trying to conjure up willfully kindness or force compassion or generate mudita or effort our way into equanimity they're actually about releasing what gets in the way to uncover what's actually already there that might be pretty far deeply buried in there but as we go through this process of releasing what gets in the way these qualities start to become more apparent. So I think of this um, as the analogy of the Hubble telescope, and I'm not a scientist, but my understanding was that this, the Hubble telescope is looking for the deepest, is beaming out into outer space and looking for the faintest signs of life. Now, one of my students in New Zealand is a PhD physics student, and he told me that that understanding is not technically correct, but I hope you'll allow me the poetry of it. It's still in the terrain of receiving these messages that are very distant and faint. And I feel like sometimes we're turning the Hubble telescope into our own hearts and looking for those faintest flickers of life, the faintest trace of kindness or compassion or joy and equanimity and just the recognition of them helps them to start to develop and to strengthen so as a invitation to maybe practice with this Hubble telescope I thought to just to read you the list of the um, things that you noticed this afternoon to hear the range of what people experienced. Some of them are memories, some of them are sense impressions uh, in the immediate present moment, but quite a, a range of different things. And as I read them, you might just like to tune into your own heart-mind and see if there is at times a flicker of recognition or um, a little pulse of appreciation or perhaps a... Uh, trace of joy at times. So just sitting quietly and listening to the list. Appreciating ghost gums. Clean, dry washing. My body walking without pain. 
the bees collecting nectar in the spring blossoms, the warm sun on my back, the contrasting clear blue sky as backdrop for the dark green trees, feeling the sun on my skin, hearing the birds singing, smelling the jasmine made me grateful during my walking meditation, the kookaburras laughing in the distance somewhere, the feeling and sound of the pine needles and moss underfoot, a bee diving into a pink blossom in search of honey, shadows strewn by wayward tree branches, fragrances of myriad but unknown flowers, My heart overflowed with so many delights from nature and physical experiences in such a short space of time. Watching colorful little birds fluttering around, eating the nectar from the flowers. The warm, gentle sun on my face, followed by a gentle breeze on my skin. The sound of the breeze in the trees reminded me of the sound of the ocean, feeling hot water on my skin when taking a shower, warm sun coming through the window, hearing the kookaburras calling, chainsaw sounds remind me of noise at siesta time when I was little, waking up to some cool jelly sweet, rarely affordable by my mother. Little branches fallen off trees remind me of tools children played with in my neighborhood. Looking over the fences remind me of times neighborhood mothers chat with each other after hard times taking care of their families. Pink flower color reminds me of the only hat I had before I left home. The roof curve reminds me of the temple I used to go to with my mother. The dog barking and sounds of cockatoos remind me of sounds in the early morning in my village when people woke up to burn wood to make the first meal of the day before their hard work in the fields. The joy of talking with friends. The taste of delicious food at lunch time away from my family. So, so grateful for the opportunity to practice the Dharma in such a beautiful, nurturing environment. To receive very good guidance and support for my practice. To be alive, healthy, with upright mind, surrounded by friends enjoying ease and freedom. Appreciating Greg's Qigong sessions, the sense of community and connection when we're all moving together gracefully, synchronized. Appreciating all the efforts of the volunteer cooks and managers who are taking such good care of us. 
appreciating the feeling of ease and aliveness from having this time to keep being present to what is, moment after moment. So just sitting with these moments of mudita, however many or few there may have been for you, and to whatever degree of intensity they may have been, just silently acknowledging them in the service of inclining the heart and the mind towards joy. Because joy is also one of the seven awakening factors, the seven factors of enlightenment that we'll be exploring later on. And in the context of the awakening factors, joy is known as piti. Piti is the Pali word that's usually translated as joy, sometimes as rapture or rapt interest. Either way, it's a profoundly wholesome mental quality. And as we continue in training and strengthening all of these skillful mental qualities, At times we might experience a kind of positive chain reaction where each quality quite naturally flows into the next and gives rise to the next and the next, leading eventually to very highly refined mind states that support the deepest insights to arise. So just in case any of you are still... um, feeling that mudita or any form of joy is somehow frivolous and not really um, a deep practice, I'd like to finish with a quote from the suttas that describes one of these uh, chain reactions of skillful states. And as you'll hear, joy is featured quite uh, strongly in the beginning of that chain reaction. This is uh, quite a long passage, so I just invite you to settle back and let the words wash over you, because as you'll hear, the refrain in this passage is about not needing any act of will. In other words, there's an effortlessness to this process that you might like to relax into right now. So this is what it says. For a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue, there is no need for an act of will. May freedom from remorse arise in me. It is in the nature of things that freedom from remorse arises in a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue. For a person free from remorse, There is no need for an act of will. May joy arise in me. It is in the nature of things that joy arises in a person free from remorse. For a joyful person, there is no need for an act of will. May rapture arise in me. It is in the nature of things that rapture arises in a joyful person. For a rapturous person, there is no need for an act of will. May my body be serene. It is in the nature of things that a rapturous person grows serene in body. For a person serene in body, there is no need for an act of will. May I experience pleasure. 
it is in the nature of things that a person serene in body experiences pleasure. For a person experiencing pleasure, there is no need for an act of will. May my mind grow concentrated. It is in the nature of things that the mind of a person experiencing pleasure grows concentrated. For a person whose mind is concentrated, there is no need for an act of will. May I know and see things as they actually are. It is in the nature of things that a person whose mind is concentrated knows and sees things as they actually are. And it goes on through a few more stages until in the end it says, in this way, mental qualities lead on to mental qualities. Mental qualities bring mental qualities to their consummation for the sake of going from the near to the farther shore. And the further shore here is a metaphor for Nibbana, for complete freedom of heart and mind. So joy is one of the stages in this natural sequence, this natural arising of skillful qualities that without any need for an act of will leads all the way to freedom. So thank you for your attention and let's just sit quietly for a few moments and let the words dissolve. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.